The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Who rules over you? Simply find out you are not allowed to criticize. You are listening to ACH. I'm Andy, your host, and today I'm delighted to welcome my dear friend Dr. Peter Hammond back to the show. So let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I'm with you. Yes, thank you, Andrew. Excellent. And what Peter's got for us today, folks, is a presentation entitled "The Real Story of the Christian History in Africa." So, Peter, where would you like to start us off today? Well, Andrew, I've just been off on a mission to Mpumalanga and I've been lecturing on African church history for the last week with um, students from about 20 different nations across Africa and meeting pastors and discussing with missionaries and pastors and evangelists and training from all over Africa, from Liberia and Ghana, from Uganda and Kenya, from Nigeria and Madagascar, Tanzania. Uh, it really gives you a different perspective and I'm sure some listeners have noticed on the news rising resistance to the New World Order from Africa, particularly against the LGBTQ, gay, GB, pink agenda. The country of Uganda has banned um, every form of homosexuality and the grooming of children, and the president of Uganda was directly threatened by President Biden of America that America would cut off all support and switch off the lights and all that sort of thing for Uganda if they didn't um, accept the LGBTQ agenda from America. And uh, the Ugandan president said, go ahead, our Christianity is more important to us than any of your aid. And you can see from Ghana as well, there's been tremendous rising resistance and they've made the strong point, which is a very valid point. Why is it that the West is so concerned about gay rights in Africa when they don't seem to have any interest in the same gay rights in the Middle East and how in the Middle East um, Muslim nations have the death penalty for homosexuality, throw gays off rooftops or uh, hang them in in Iran and so on, and Saudi Arabia might have them beheaded. But uh, here they're concerned about laws in Africa to protect people from homosexual abuse, homosexual rape, and the grooming of children for perversion. And now suddenly uh, the West is selectively, hypocritically targeting Africans, but still giving most favored nation status to Muslim Middle East countries, which might have the death penalty for homosexual rights, pointing out the hypocrisy of Western businesses that all 
go in June into the whole rainbow image, changing the corporate image to incorporate the colors of the LGBT community, but they don't do it in the Middle East. So, you know, what hypocrisy is this? Do they only promote uh, gay rights where gay rights are entrenched, where it's virtue signaling and might affect uh, some profits for the company, but not in countries in the Middle East where it is rejected and regarded with such repugnance that there's often the death penalty connected with it. So, you know, how hypocritical is that? But I think many people might be very surprised to hear that the fastest growing sections of the Christian church worldwide are in Africa and South America. So the sense of gravity or equilibrium of the Christian world has moved from the northern to the southern hemispheres, to what they call now the global south. So now the fastest growing church in the world are found in Africa, South America and parts of Asia. And the traditional Christian countries of North America and British Isles and Europe, especially Western Europe, are in many cases stagnating and declining and contracting. So today there are vastly more Christians in the Congo than in Belgium, which once ran the Congo. I remember when I was converted, many people talking about, well, what about the cannibals in the Congo who've never heard the gospel? Well, I've had cannibals, uh, sorry, I've had uh, pygmies from the Congo attending my biblical worldview summits and Great Commission course camps. We've had people from Maasai in Kenya and other uh, very exotic tribes attending our camps and I can tell you there's vastly more Anglicans in church in Nigeria every Sunday than on the whole of the British Isles and North America combined. So today you would have about 18 million Christians in just Nigeria who call themselves Anglicans in church every Sunday compared to a fraction of that in the British Isles, Australia, New Zealand and Canada combined. So the sense of of gravity for many denominations and Christianity as a whole have moved towards Africa. And it's because of the sacrifices and the commitments, the tremendous missionary work and also the blood of the martyrs in Africa. The church is growing so fast in Africa today that we can't keep up with uh, sufficient Bibles or Bible teaching. One of the statistics that drives our mission is there's 500 million churchgoers in Africa today, 500 million people who call themselves Christians in Africa to this day, of which 100 million do not yet have a Bible or even a New Testament available. And so church growth is so great in Africa, we can't keep pace in leadership training or in providing literature. So the numbers of Christians in, in Africa today is so huge. We talk about 150 million Protestants 80 million Anglicans, and another 160 million Charismatics and Pentecostals, independent Christians around Africa. So it is absolutely huge. According to Operation World, the growth of the church in Africa is unprecedented. In the beginning of the 19th century or 1800s, the number of Christians in Africa would have been around 5 million. 5 million Christians in 1800, most of those up in Egypt and Ethiopia. Today, 500 million people in Africa claim to be Christians, 150 million Protestants, 50 million Anglicans, 140 million Charismatics, 60 million Pentecostals, 100 million Independents, officially. That's according to Operation World, which is the greatest um, international prayer book for 
Christianity Worldwide. And one can confirm that on the www.operation world or upworld website. So how is it that Christian history has uh, developed in what used to be the dark continent into probably one of the most Christian continents in the world? And of course, this is where our mission is heavily involved. But many people may be surprised to hear the real story of the Christian history of Africa. You sometimes hear people talking about Black History Month and so on. Well, they seem to miss out the Christian history. And then you, you hear people talking about Africa, like Africa's non-Christian or anti-Christian. But in fact, it's more likely right now that we've got increasing secularization and paganization of Western Europe <coughs> and North America. But one of the untold stories is how anti is becoming more and more the religion of the global South and of South and Central America and also uh, Africa, parts of Asia too. There's some very strongly Christian countries in Asia, such as Philippines and um, even South Korea, very strongly missionary sending. And there's millions of Christians in India today, which is the largest nation in the world. India's uh, population has now outstripped that even of red China. Mainland China is now below India's total population. And there's many Christians in India too, even though it's a majority Hindu country. So the history of Christianity in, in Africa really begins in Acts chapter 8. And uh, when Philip is led to the road to Gaza to lead the treasure of Queen Candace of Moreau, the kingdom of Moreau, to the Lord in what is today the Upper Nile region. And uh, of course, John Mark, the author of Mark's Gospel, was born in Africa as well. John Mark was born in Sarini in North Africa, what today would be Libya. And nomadic tribes invaded the area, robbed and pillaged, looted livestock, stole valuables. And Mark's parents suffered the loss of most of their possessions, so they migrated to Jerusalem. John Mark's family were closely connected with Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry. And John Mark was present at the wedding in Cana in Galilee in John chapter 2. John Mark was one of the 70 disciples sent out to proclaim the gospel in Luke 10. The apostle Peter was a cousin of Mark's father. Barnabas was Mark's cousin. And John Mark's mother Mary played an active role in the early days of the church in Jerusalem. Her upper room was used for the Passover meal in which the Lord um, had his last supper with the disciples. And it was also the upper room in which the Pentecost prayer meeting was held, and John Mark's mother's upper room was also used for um, much of the early church's activities, and such as when they were praying for the Apostle Peter's uh, release from prison. John Mark accompanied his uncle Barnabas and Paul on their first missionary journey to Cyprus, Acts 13. John Mark became the first missionary to Africa, establishing the church in Pentapolis, and then later to Alexandria, the greatest city in Africa and the third greatest city in the world at that time. One of the greatest centers of lit literature and culture and learning in the world at that time was Alexandria. In northern Egypt, literally on the coast of the Mediterranean, founded by Alexander the Great, named after him. So John Mark interacted with the Greek philosophers and the Hebrew rabbis, the Persian and Indian seers, and the Egyptian teachers who gathered in Alexandria who debated world and life views. Well, John Mark effectively established the church in Alexandria, and to this day, the 
Coptic church in Egypt, which is still a huge amount of people, millions of people there who are Coptic Christians in Egypt, um, they see themselves as the see of St. Mark. And I've come across so many St. Mark's congregations. I've preached in St. Mark's as well, uh, Egyptian Coptic churches, which um, see themselves dating back to the evangelist John Mark, who was born in Africa and who was the first missionary to Africa. John Mark was martyred in AD 68 when a mob from the Serapis temple um, attacked him and killed him. And uh, Egypt became a majority Christian country already by the 4th century. And they've endured 14 centuries of Islamic persecution since the Arabs managed to colonize Egypt back in the 7th century. So some of the greatest names in early church history were African. I think many people forget this. But some of the greatest names in the early church, the early church fathers, were North Africans. Clement of Alexandria established the um, uh, catechetical school in Alexandria. Oregon of Alexandria, one of the most prominent theologians and writers um, of the early church. Uh, he revived the catechetical school of Alexandria, where Clement had once taught. And Oregon did a tremendous amount of ministry and evangelism throughout. After Tertullian of Carthage, Tertullian is the first of the early church fathers to use the word Trinity in Latin. And uh, he was in what today would be considered Tunisia, Carthage at that time. And uh, Tertullian wrote some of the greatest defenses against the Gnostic heresy. And he wrote the Apologies um, on uh, Apologeticus, addressed to Roman magistrates defending Christianity and advocating and, and initiating the whole principle of religious freedom as an inalienable right. One of the first to ever do that. There's also Cyprian of Carthage, a church father and a martyr, who was killed for Christ during one of the persecutions of the Romans, a very prolific writer. Athanasius of Alexandria, who became Bishop of Alexandria for 45 years. He spent 17 of those years in exiles ordered by five different Roman emperors. Uh, Alexandria uh, was the uh, leader most associated with the first uh, Nicene Creed, which defends and articulates the Trinity doctrine, but also the Athanasian Creed, which is in our prayer books and one of the great ecumenical creeds that all Protestants, even Catholics and Orthodox, hold to as the definitive description of the Trinity. Athanasius was such a pillar of the church, he fought against Arianism, which is like the Jehovah's Witness view of the time that Jesus was a God, not God denying the Trinity. And um, the term Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world, comes from a stand against the attacks on the doctrine of the Trinity. And he was the great preeminent champion of the doctrine of the Trinity, Augustine, uh, sorry, Athanasius, who came from Alexandria. And then his Augustine of Hippo, one of the greatest theologians of the first millennium, and remember that even Professor Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. In many ways, Augustine is the one who first articulated what later came as Calvinism. Salvation is by the grace of God alone, uh, received by faith alone, that we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin which made it necessary. Augustine wrote two of the greatest bestsellers in the history of the church, one being Confessions, which is his testimony, and the other being City of God, 
articulating why the Roman Empire fell. And uh, many people were feeling like it was the end of the world when the Roman Empire, Roman civilization collapsed. And Augustine wrote this colossal book, uh, The City of God, pointing out that men build men's cities and men destroy men's cities. But God is building a city which can never be destroyed. And that is the kingdom of God. And so at the time when people were aghast because of the destruction of the Roman Empire, the fact that even uh, the city of Rome itself had been sacked, uh, he drew people's attention back to the fact that we are dual citizens and the distinctives of the city of man and distinctives of the city of God. Well, Augustine wrote a lot of very important things which have influenced us to this day. Um, he's the one who wrote that God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Uh, Augustine was a tremendous philosopher and theologian, probably the greatest theologian of the first millennium, just as John Calvin's greatest theologian of the last millennium, without a doubt. So there's so many uh, important things, including the fact that the principles for a just war were first articulated by Augustinian, and it guarded Christian Europe for many centuries to go. Now, in fact, as we're involved in a very unjust war at this time in um, Ukraine, it would be wise to look at the principles of a just war, which Augustine demonstrated from the scriptures. War must be a last resort, not the first resort. It must only be after total failure of all diplomatic, peaceful means. Law must, uh, a just war must be a defensive war, never an aggressive war. And uh, that uh, a just war must be waged only against military targets, never targeting civilians. To target civilians is immediately an unjust war. A just war must have a just cause, and it must be waged by just means, which includes the fact that when you go to besiege a city, you're not to cut down the fruit trees. And so because... Fruit trees are so essential for life. The idea is your weapons used should not be so indiscriminate that they damage nature and damage agricultural potential. So, you know, you think aerial bombardments and uh, carpet bombing of cities, civilians would certainly not qualify as just war. And a lot of the weapons used are not just in that they don't distinguish between the combatants and the non-combatants the civilians and, and the military, or for that matter, wildlife, uh, animals, domestic animals, and uh, nature. So the just war principle was uh, important, also laying out the fact that the cost of a war must not exceed the benefits. You've got to count the cost ahead of time. If the, if the benefits are going to be less than the cost, it's not worthwhile going to war. Uh, you've got to consider, do you have a reasonable prospect of success? And... Uh, will the cost be way outnumbered by the benefits? So cost-benefits um, analysis was part of a just war. And so he put a lot of common sense and biblical principles together, and that guided Christians for many centuries to come. So we have a tremendous legacy in Africa from John Mark in particular. Uh, John Mark, who wrote Mark's Gospel and who gave his life for um, the faith in Alexandria, the Gospel of Mark was the first gospel to be written, and it's the shortest, and it relates, interestingly enough, the most miracles. Uh, John Mark was the co-worker of Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, 
And he deserted. He actually failed and went back and created such a division between Paul and Barnabas that later Paul and Barnabas split when Barnabas wanted to bring John Mark back and Paul would not because he had put his hand to the plow and looked back. But John Mark is a great example that failure does not need to be final and uh, sin doesn't have to have the last word in our life because John Mark later rebuilt his trust with Paul. So Paul wrote and said, bring John Mark with you because he's useful to me in the ministry. And John Mark not only wrote his own gospel under the guidance of the Apostle Peter, but also was the scribe to write down uh, the epistle, second epistle of Peter. Um, in many different ways, you can see John Mark uh, be, really rose again from the failure of his early life of deserting the Apostle Paul in the field to becoming a powerful evangelist in Egypt and being the first great missionary to Africa. Another great missionary to Africa was the Apostle Matthew. The Apostle Matthew took the gospel to Abyssinia, what in the Bible days was called Axum, and what today is called Ethiopia, and planted a church at one of the oldest churches in Africa, the church in Ethiopia, which is very dynamic and very strong. Uh, Matthew was later axed to death in Abyssinia, and uh, the blood of the martyrs led to a great and powerful church. Uh, he died about the year AD 60, in Nabada Axum, in what later became Ethiopia. So another question to ask is, if Christianity started in North Africa, and at one time North Africa was the stronghold of the church, why did Christianity die out in North Africa? Not that it died out everywhere. It's, it stayed consistently strong in Egypt and Ethiopia to this day. But in Sudan, for example, northern Sudan and Libya and other parts of North Africa like uh, Algeria and Tunisia, Christianity died out. And the question is, why did Christianity die out in Northern Africa um, at one time? And it's worthwhile noticing for a thousand years, Christianity predominated Northern Sudan. What today's Arabic Sudan was for centuries, a majority Christian kingdom. But um, one needs to recognize that while the early Christians in these countries resisted Islam when it came and did not fall from the outside, they later were corrupted from the inside. And the reasons why North Africa became overwhelmingly Islamic when it had at one time been Christian needs to be understood. And the first thing is that there was tremendous centralization. Uh, the kingdoms were very much hierarchical and so was the church. And so when the top leaders fell, the church fell with it. The kings were even in many cases priests as well in Northern Sudan. And so there was no real separation between church and state. So when the political entity fell, so did the church. Being too closely associated with the government is sometimes dangerous. They were also heavily dependent on foreign ministers. Almost all the ministers of the gospel in northern Sudan were foreign bishops from Egypt, either Egyptian, Coptic, or Greek. And the services in Sudan, for example, were held overwhelmingly in the Coptic or the Greek languages, so not the local languages. And so Christianity in Northern Africa was overwhelmingly a religion of the elite, educated elite, not of the common man. While the churches were strong in the cities and towns, they had far smaller impact amongst the rural farming communities. And when Islam took over Egypt and cut off the supply of ministers coming to this church in Sudan, that of course starved the church of leadership. Also disturbing is that the Bible was never available in the local languages, many of the local People had no literacy in the local languages. If they didn't write Greek or Latin, 
or Coptic, then they could not read the Bible. There was also Islamic infiltration, even though their armies were defeated when they first attacked Sudan in 642 AD, uh, and they failed several times in a row. They later came in as migrants, as traders, as nomads, and eroded the dominance and spread of, of Christianity in those areas. And then there was a lot of intermarriage between Muslim merchants and uh, local Christian girls. And so the intermarriage led to tremendous compromise and treachery. The Nubian kings then agreed to sell many of their people as slaves to the Muslims as part of the Bakht Peace Agreement, a treaty to ensure uh, peace between the Muslim North and the Christian South. But you can imagine selling 12,000 of your people as slaves every year, it brings the judgment of God down upon you. The protection of the Lord was lifted, the judgment of God fell, and you could just imagine how treacherous that was, that they basically destroyed themselves from within by compromising so heavily as to allow their daughters to intermarry with Muslims and to allow their uh, markets to be dominated by Muslim merchants and then to even sell some of their own people into slavery. And you think today so much of our schools are slavery to the New World Order and system where they where we send our children to school where they are indoctrinated to be LGBTQ, transgender perverts and so on, and evolutionists and situation ethics and undermining all the basic principles of Christianity in the so-called government schools, and we even pay for it. Is that not selling our children out into a form of slavery? So it's worth noting that the decay came from within. Christianity did not die out in northern Africa because of external persecution by Muslims. The churches were empty and being abandoned long before Islam filled the vacuum and became well established. Very few of the Nubians, for example, were literate, and their services, being in foreign languages of Greek and Hebrew, meant the word of God was not well known amongst the common people. They were overly dependent on foreign bishops and priests, particularly from Egypt, and this made them very vulnerable when these links to the outside world were cut by the Muslims. Churches are too closely allied to political structures are going to fall with the kings. And compromising with the enemies of the faith and allowing a quota of their people to be enslaved every year to buy assurance of peace is inviting the condemnation of God. So it's very clear we should always give priority to literacy training, to Bible teaching and to leadership uh, training in general. Um, we need to build congregations of self-supporting, self-governing and self-propagating we need to teach and practice decentralization and the priesthood of all believers. Not the priesthood of all believers, but the priesthood of all believers. We all have direct access to God. And unfortunately, the early church in North Africa failed on these levels and they were quite weak. So interesting how the church spread from Egypt into Sudan and, of course, was very strong in Ethiopia, what today is called Ethiopia. And you can see... In some of these places, as I've been there and seen, you can get a big temple, the ruins of a temple that used to be the pagan gods in Egypt, and then you've got the ruins of a church next to it. And quite aside from different architecture, it's quite clear that Christianity defeated the false religions of Egypt and Sudan and even in Ethiopia, but later failed to rise to the challenge and were overwhelmed by the rising amounts of Muslims coming into the area, allowing intermarriage and allowing the Muslims to dominate the marketplaces definitely can sow seeds for destruction of any community. And 
I would hope that Christians in Africa learn these lessons, but also that Christians in Europe need to learn these lessons. What was once a great Christian Byzantine Empire is now Turkey, which is one of the largest unreached people groups in the world today. And that the seven churches of Revelation in the, in the book of Revelation, the seven churches are all in what today is present-day Turkey. What today is called Turkey was once the center of Christianity, the Byzantine Empire, and there was a millennium of Christian civilization in the, West, in the Eastern Roman Empire before Byzantine fell with the fall of Constantinople, 1452. So it's so important to know our history, otherwise London could become Londinistan and um, America could become Ameristan. Europe could become Arabia if one doesn't learn the lessons of the early church and what happened in North Africa. And so there used to be a very strong white civilization of Christians in North Africa, white tribes in North Africa, Carthage and so on, and the Copts in Egypt. But in many cases, they're on the retreat today, and the church is still very strong in Egypt and in Syria, but they've been targeted by the New World Order too. Over the years, Africa grew much through the work of missionaries. Um, Samuel Ajay Crowther was a Nigerian black man who was sold into slavery by the Muslim Fulani slave raiders. A Portuguese trader bought them for transport across the Atlantic to offload in Brazil. But a British naval squadron of the Royal Navy um, rescued Samuel Ajay Crowther and all the others who were in their particular slave ship and set them free at Sierra Leone, which Britain had established as a haven for free slaves. So Samuel Crowther was rescued in 1822, converted to Christ in 1825, and he was later consecrated on 1862 at an overflowing Canterbury Cathedral as the first African Bishop of the Church of England, and then under, um, had to undertake a mission against the slave trade in Nigeria, where of the 145 Europeans on the expedition, 130 were struck down with malaria and 40 died. Imagine 40 members of a single team dying on one mission. Well, they succeeded in winning the local people to Christ and establishing a very strong Anglican communion in Nigeria to the extent that Nigeria still has one of the largest collections of Anglicans in the world today. Samuel Jack Crowther did a lot to win his own people, the Yoruba people, to Christ, and he even had the joy of baptizing his own mother. And she took the Christian name Hannah. So he had taken the name of Samuel Crowther for after a church missionary Saudi bishop. And uh, so his given name was Ajay, and his Christian names were Samuel Crowther. So Samuel Ajay Crowther stands out as an extraordinary Nigerian Anglican who laid such good foundations that today, Nigeria has one of the largest communities of Christians in the whole of Africa, a very huge nation. Robert Moffat was a Scottish missionary of the London Missionary Society who had the privilege of winning one of the most notorious gangsters, murderers in the Cape to Christ and being able to really transform, see transformation of his life when he brought him into Cape Town. Robert Moffat went to Kudaman and developed Kuruman into the prototype London Missionary Society mission base, where many people came to Christ. And he converted, sorry, he translated the Bible into China. So the first African language Bible fully translated was the Bible into China, done by Robert Moffat. 
He brought the first printing press north of the Orange River in, and he printed translation of the Westminster Catechism, Pilgrim's Progress, and of course the whole Bible. And he's the one who recruited David Livingston, who'd been planning to be a missionary to China, to think of Africa rather than David Livingston redirected from Asia to Africa on the base of Robert Moffat's vision of the smoke of a thousand villages that have not yet heard the name of Christ. And of the seven children born to Robert and Mary Moffat, five became fully involved in missionary service. And his daughter married David Livingston. So David Livingston's famous son-in-law was, uh, David Livingston's famous father-in-law was Robert Moffat. There are other great missionaries like Mary Slessor, a Scotswoman who went to Calabar, what today is Nigeria, ended the killing of twins, rescued people from bondage and slavery, rescued people from being sacrificed by the witch doctor, and particularly twins. It was believed in Nigeria at that time that twins were a product of union with the devil and that the mother was guilty of a great sin. So twins were, were killed and fed to wild ants and insects and wild beasts. And Mary Slessor rescued twins and brought them up and proved to the people they were not even possessed. And many of them excelled in education and became very responsible people later. She converted cannibals to Christ. She fought against the slave trade. Mary Slessor once wrote in a prelater back home to a church in Scotland, please send maximum machine guns to combat slave traders in the areas. I don't know how many people would respond to such a request today um, in a missionary newsletter, but Mary Slessor was a fiery redhead who saved a lot of people's lives and planted many churches, very brave, very courageous. And then one of the most colorful missionaries of all time, C.T. Studd, the greatest cricketer of Britain in the Greatest Century Missions, C.T. Studd, who was uh, several times voted the most gifted player, uh, the best all-round cricket player in all of England. He's the one who uh, not only captained the Eton cricket team, but later captained the English, the all-English team, which went to Australia to retrieve the ashes, the ashes of the uh, cricket stumps that had been burned after Australia had beaten the English that became the base of the trophy to win the Ashes. And so after the Ashes of England's glory were put in a silver cup and taken back to Australia, C.T. Studd was with a team from England that went to retrieve the Ashes and bring it back to England by beating the Australians. Well, when he had the world at his feet, C.T. Studd heard Deal Moody speak, convert his life to Christ, and decide to give up his career in cricket and become a missionary for the rest of his life. Very brave, bold, first went to China, 10 years in China, all four of his daughters born in China, married a Salvation Army woman, and later he went to India and then finally to Congo. And C.T. studied a phenomenal amount of work bringing the gospel to the heart of Africa amongst the cannibals. And today the Congo has a tremendously large Christian community. They've gone through the fires. I've spoken to people who were missionaries or whose parents were missionaries and who were killed in the Congo who've continued to minister and have gone back to the people, the very people who killed their parents and who've built strong churches in the Congo. So the blood of the martyrs is very much entrenched in the Congo. Congo is a massive country, the largest country in Africa. And the first time that C.T. Studd was doing baptisms in a crocodile-infested river, he had to have a revolver in his right hand while he was baptizing with his left hand. 
having to fire into the water to keep the crocodiles at bay while doing his first uh, baptism there. As C.T. Studd said, some like to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within the yard of hell. And so we've gotten to an intriguing situation that through the work of great missionaries like David Livingston, who walked across Africa from coast to coast, and Gordon Pasha, that's General Charles Gordon, who managed to free the slaves in Sudan, and, uh, and the work of great explorers like Henry Morton Stanley, the journalist who found an empire and created the modern Congo Free State, ending human trafficking, slavery, and cannibalism in the Congo. Africa today has more Christians in Europe, and it's an extraordinary achievement considering Africa was the dark continent not that long ago. Some parts were still are quite dark. So I was part of the largest missions conference in history, which was in Cape Town. In Cape Town 2010 was the Lausanne 3, or the third great Lausanne Con Congress on evangelism. And uh, it was intriguing to see how the church has changed over the years, because back in 1910, when the first World Missions Conference was held in Edinburgh, Christians was overwhelmingly North America and Northwestern Europe. But now Christianity is overwhelmingly centered or gravitated in the South or the Global South, which includes African, South American parts of Asia. And I must say, being one of the participants at the 2010 Congress on World Evangelization in Cape Town, it just showed how things have changed to such an extent that right now Africa's one of the largest Christian continents in the world and very soon could be a majority Christian continent. And that's why the New World Order is finding tremendous resistance in Africa because many of our people are dedicated Christians and they're not interested in the LGBTQ, gay, perverted um, agenda. They're not interested in what the pink agenda says. And they know there's just two genders, male and female, and marriage can only be between a man and a woman. I mean, these are thought crimes today. If you've seen the um, tremendous film on What is a Woman uh, by Mike Walsh, uh, you'll, you'll see how uh, plainly, uh, after all the confusion, America goes out to Africa and he asks some of the Maasai people, you know, can a man become a woman? Can a woman become a man? And the answer is just very straightforward, no. And... Uh, what about somebody who said that they thought they were a male trapped, a female trapped in a male body, and they'd say, that person has a problem in their head, they need, they need uh, medical help. And so, to the Africans, that's a very straightforward way of speaking. The president of Kenya said to Barack Hussein Obama, when he went on his 2013 gospel of the gay marriage around Africa, the president of Kenya said, people who have ruined their own country should not presume to come here to lecture us on the way forward. And I think there's many in Africa who are looking with horror, disgust, amusement, and just uh, absolute disdain at the confusion of the West as people in the West are running around naked, body scarification, and engaging in perversion. You know, when explorers came to Africa a few centuries ago, they reported back on naked savages engaging in human sacrifice and running around naked and tattooing their bodies, having weird body piercings and all of that. And today it's like the situation's reversed. Now the Africans in church, well-clothed, smartly dressed, 
having a higher dress standard than most in the West, who are banning church attendance, increasingly engaging in public nudity and perversion, even celebrating perversion with so-called gay pride marches, which is very strange because as Africans know, pride is one of the seven deadly sins. Pride goes before fall. Gay pride is what got Sodom fried. And many are just absolutely aghast that the West is engaging in things which Africa was engaging in centuries ago, but the gospel came to us and transformed us. And it's been a privilege in my mission for the last 41 years to be a missionary to Africa, to see whole countries one to Christ and seeing more and more countries officially declaring themselves Christians. In Africa today, homosexuality is outlawed in 34 countries. And there's more and more laws coming out against LGBTQ grooming of kids and child abuse and uh, perversion and pornography. So even abortion, you know, you think people were horrified that there used to be human sacrifice in Africa. Well, now there's human sacrifice in Western countries through abortion. We've got a bizarre situation that the dark continent has now become the continent most Christian. And uh, you can see the Christendom of Europe, which used to be the fountainhead of missions worldwide, is now becoming a mission field. And do you think that where they used to celebrate Christianity, today they're celebrating of pride. And pride is not something Christians should celebrate. God resists the proud. God gives grace to the humble. Pride and a haughty spirit go before destruction. And Sodom and Gomorrah should be enough warning of that. So I would hope that some people would find the real story of Christian history of Africa challenging and interesting. We have some phenomenal revivals going on in Africa, like at Kwasi Sibantu Mission in Zuland. We've seen revivals in the field in places like Sudan. In Ethiopia, there's been phenomenal growth of the church and tremendous persecution of the church too. But the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And there is no doubt whatsoever that Africa is heading towards becoming a majority Christian continent in our lifetimes. We're very close to that. And right now, there are 500 million people in Africa who call themselves Christians. And there are hundreds of millions of people in church every Sunday in Africa. But the challenge for missions like ours is providing enough Bibles and Bible teaching for these people because plainly um, they need the Bible if they to grow in good, solid direction. And I've had a role in being able to help put a span in the works of the New World Order. So, for example, back in 1990s, I was heavily involved in the church in Sudan. And most of the Christians in Sudan are Episcopal Church of Sudan, in other words, Anglicans, in conference with the Lambeth Conference. I knew the Lambeth Conference was coming up in 1998. And so I warned the bishops as I was sitting around the campfire talking to them at night what was coming, gay marriage. And they, they thought this is beyond ridiculous. And how is it possible? And I said, this is where it's going. When you go to Lambeth Conference, you're going to find they're going to want you to ordain gay priests, gay bishops and gay marriage. And I gave them the scriptures and the information and books on this that they could counter it. And at Lambeth Conference, the Anglicans from Sudan, Uganda, Kenya, and Nigeria managed to turn the tide and outvote the Western liberals who were trying to bring in gay priests and gay marriages and so on. And at the end of that, they came back and they reported to me that the liberals, we're talking about the liberals who always have been screaming against racism. Do you know what they said to the bishops from Sudan and Kenya when they told them, well, the Bible um, forbids us and this is an abomination? They said, the only reason you're saying that is because you're illiterate and uneducated. So literally you had these liberals 
scorning the bishops of Africa for being Bible-believing and trying to have a biblical position. And then uh, they were even accused of being stupid and bigoted and narrow-minded and so on for wanting to be biblical. So isn't it interesting how racist our, our liberal friends can be when their agenda is the one under attack? And then Africans are suddenly being um, a sworn at by so-called Christians in the West because they won't hold to evolutionism or they believe literally that the Bible is true from cover to cover every word. And for holding to the inerrancy and authority of Scripture, they're now being uh, dismissed and insulted by these so-called liberals in the West who obviously aren't quite the uh, open-minded people that they claim to be. We're facing such a tidal wave of intolerance but I think you can count on the cultural wars going on right now uh, with the New World Order that there's more resistance growing in Africa uh, to the New World Disorder, and I think it's going to frustrate their plans. And our mission's had a key part in that because we've been doing leadership training and Bible distribution, Bible teaching throughout Africa now for 40 years. And it's, it's like one of the best things you can do is build up local resistance to the New World Order by giving the people Bibles and Bible teaching. And so all over Africa, we've got people well-taught and who's strong with the biblical doctrines who hold to historic Christianity and say, no, we're not interested in this kind of transgender madness. We're not going to follow. And you notice that the biggest resistance in the world to the masquerade madness and the salvation by vaccination COVID cult was in Africa, where the vast amount of black people refused it. And I had some black friends come along to me saying, this uh, vaccination it looks to me like it's muti, in other words, magic, uh, from uh, the whites to uh, put a curse on us. And I said, that's exactly what it is. This is, in fact, they're not really white. They're the synagogue of Satan, but this is an attempt to put uh, a curse on you so to resist the vaccination. And many saw it that way and said, no, we're not going to get the mark of the beast. And there was this kind of attitude of, um, we see in the book of Revelation, everyone was required to get a mark or they weren't allowed to buy and sell. This looks too close to that. We're not going to risk our eternal salvation or our health uh, by um, taking this mark that they want us to have in order to be able to travel and uh, attend universities and things like that. So you see a lot of the agenda of the New World Order is crashing in Africa and there's tremendous resistance and there's no way they're going to get the LGBTQ agenda through the resistance of Africa, which is more traditionally conservative. And having come out of paganism, they lessen enthralled by the West um, being enamored by paganism, people who want to come along now and uh, uh, say we want to redefine genders and we want to do things that the Bible condemns and, and call it an alternative lifestyle, that's not working in Africa. And so what you've seen in Uganda and Kenya and Nigeria recently, Ghana, you're going to see more of that. And there's a growing conservative uh, movement in Africa which is going to uh, create such a roadblock, New World Order will not be able to corral Africa into this uh, new promoter. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And um, I would encourage all of you listening um, who have the wherewithal to do so to support Frontline Fellowship's work, Peter's mission, um, because his mission, his church, their primary role is to spread the word of God. And many churches will say that, but you go to them. Whereas Peter goes on all sorts of tours, missionary, uh, you know, missionary um, 
visits he's done so throughout the world to actually turn people to Christ so he goes to them and that's why I enjoy working with Peter so much with all the work that he does so now that I do this show as a hobby and it's a great hobby to have I get to speak to my closest friends and get important information out to all of you who've supported the show over the years I don't take donations so if you do want to support the show the best way to do it is to send a donation to frontline fellowship and peter's details are in the post for all our shows but i'll just give you his email address it's peter at frontline.org.za that's peter at frontline.org.za and don't forget what was what the new world order hate more than anything they hate christianity more than anything and that's why they attack all what was uh, the historical Christian countries, the Western countries. That's why they've been under such attack in so many ways. But what was the first attack that they did? The first attack that they did before they pushed all the liberalism and the free love and the drugs and all that garbage, it was taking the prayer out of schools. It was separation of church and state because they recognised that the historic Christians have protection from God because they prayed to God and many of them lived an honest Christian lifestyle. So they needed to remove God's protection from these people so they could attack these people. And that is what's happening today. So if you want to fight the new world order, the best way to do it is to recruit Christians, to spread the word of God and encourage people to turn to God, to pray, and then God will in turn help them and we need as many of them as possible to get god to help the world as a whole to overcome the new world order peter your thoughts it certainly does frustrate them no end because the most revolutionary thing you can do at reactionary to the new world order greatest resistance is believe the bible be straight get married have lots of children and that frustrates the life of the pagans and new world order perverts they are furious with what's going on in Africa. It's so funny how many times you hear these liberals calling black bishops in Africa stupid and uneducated. There was an example just recently where um, at Lambeth Conference there was a, a screaming and ranting and raving by a bunch of Anglican priests in England about the bishop of Uganda who they said had called for the drowning of gay children. And, of course, he had done nothing of the sort the fact of it when we got to the bottom of the story was the Bishop of Uganda said that Jesus said things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to the person to whom they come. It would be better for him that a millstone be tied around his neck and be cast in the depths to see than that he cause one of his little ones to stumble. Now, the Bishop of Uganda was not calling for the drowning of anyone, let alone children. He was speaking about what Jesus said, he had quoted what Jesus said about men who cause children to stumble. And he is quoting from the Bible a well-known passage, but maybe Church of England ministers are so biblically illiterate they miss this, uh, the fact that he is quoting from the Lord Jesus, from the Bible, from the Gospels itself. And he was not calling for any violence or taking law into your own hands. He is saying it's so serious to groom children in perversion. The Lord Jesus said it's better to have a millstone tied around your neck than that you cause one of the little ones to stumble. Now, that's that's a warning about the seriousness of child abuse 
and grooming of children for sexual sin, such as homosexual perversion. And uh, it just shows how the Ugandans are so much more biblical than the priests in the Church of England in England. And uh, right now we can see a resurgence of Christianity in Africa. And getting back to the Bible, I'm interested in what the stands should be. So giving good Bible teaching in Africa is doing a lot to frustrate the New World Order. And I think they're so frustrated that we had this church conference in Cape Town 2010 that Red China literally mobilized um, cyber war against our church conference. We had a massive church conference, 4,200 representatives of 198 countries gathered in Cape Town at the International Conference Center. But there were another 150,000 participants in over 100 venues that were going to participate uh, online by um, an interconnectivity on the internet. And on the opening day of our conference, 2010, October 2010, back uh, in Cape Town in 2010, China unleashed cyber war against our conference center and collapsed the entire telecommunication system on the internet, introduced millions of hostile hits, which totally destroyed all the um, different satellite sites where another 150,000 people are going to participate in another 98 countries. And to think China would have wanted to waste so much cyber war potential on a missions conference, you know, What's so significant about this missions conference? And it just shows you again, we probably devalue and don't realize how important it is that even a secular superpower like Red China would unleash cyber war, the worst the world's ever seen, um, on a single missions conference. They also ensured that not one of the 330 Chinese delegates attended the conference. They mobilized 10,000 secret police to stop over 3,300, sorry, yeah, 330 um, ministers in China who were meant to be delegates, participants in the Cape Town International Conference on World Evangelism in 2010. So not one Chinese delegate from Red China, mainland China made it. We had Chinese delegates from Free China, from Taiwan, but none from Communist China, from CCP-controlled mainland China. And that just shows you again the tyrants of the globalists, the New World Order, they hate Christianity so much. And as you know, Everything we say on this program is a thought crime to the new world disorder, the powers that should not be. They hate what we're doing, and just like George Orwell warned, they're going to want to deplatform you, unperson you, have you disappear down the memory hole because of thought crimes. And now we actually have thought police, like with Zuckerberg's face, uh, Facebook um, fa so-called fact checkers. They're not there to protect the facts. They're there to ensure that facts don't get out, that conflict with the new world order's narrative. So what a joy to be a counter-revolutionary and a reactionary uh, causing resistance to new world disorder. And I delight in evangelism, in prayer, in Christian teaching, home education, Christian textbooks. All of that is striking a blow against the globalist new world order. And anything they call a thought crime, I know is actually advancing the, case, the cause of faith and freedom. Thank you for all that you do, Andrew. I think it's so important and our listeners must know we are part of the resistance and we are frustrating the globalists and it is wonderful to encourage the believers and also to irritate and frustrate the tyrants of the globalists by being faithful to God. Thank you, Peter. Um, before we go, can you please give the audience uh, your how, details of how they can contact you uh, and yes, your certainly website? If you go onto our website... 
We've got a number of websites, but the main one is www.frontlinemissionsa.org. Frontline Mission SA, SA short for South Africa. There's a new one now, Frontline Mission North America, or NA, uh, frontlinemissionna.org. For North American, they've even got books available in North America that can be bought like Slavery, Terrorism, Islam, Historic Roots and Contemporary Threats and other of our classics. So please contact us. My email is peter, P-E-T-E-R, at frontline, F-R-O-N-T-L-I-N-E, dot R-G dot Z-A, or as the Americans say, Z-A. So frontline um, at, so it's peter at frontline dot org dot Z-A, or the website frontlinemissionsa.org. Thank you so much, Peter. Uh, folks, you have been listening to a show entitled The Real Story of the Christian History in Africa. Peter will be back with us at the same time next week. I'll, of course, be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day and bye.